before we uh, introduce our guest speaker, I just want to pray over our tithes and over our offerings. Uh, just make a couple comments. One, um, God is so good and he's so faithful. Uh, just at the break, uh, Crystal and I were talking uh, and she is a guard at the prison in Cambridge Springs, at the woman's prison in Cambridge Springs. She began to tell me the story about how God is moving inside of that place. And, you know, since that word, what, okay, I'll say it, COVID, uh, which means I have to, okay, Brian, just so you know, I hope you don't have a lot of those words in your sermon message, but here's what happens. I haven't challenged our church. If you say the word COVID, Trump, Biden, or uh, election, or mask, you have to say a biblical promise or recite a scripture, the first one that comes to mind. So I got families all over the place holding each other accountable, giving me stories about, hey, I heard my friends say mask, I make them say a promise. So every time we say any one of those words, we have to say a promise. So since I said uh, COVID, I'm going to say this. Hey, let's not worry about anything, what we shall eat, what we shall drink, what we shall wear. For the pagans run after these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you are in need of them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Amen? Amen. So since that little thing that was going on, they had to split up. They weren't having the normal church services in the prison, uh, and Crystal has told me that the ministry there on a Saturday afternoon, that God miraculously rearranged her schedule for her to actually be able to participate in this, as a guard, is growing. There's, what, 17 women. It keeps growing. It's now up to 33 women. And God is just doing amazing work in the prisons. You know, we, we hear and see the stuff that's going on here, but God is moving everywhere. Amen? He is moving everywhere. And Crystal actually gets to give part of her testimony uh, is it next weekend, maybe, or the weekend following that. So it's an amazing thing. God is moving, and wherever we're called, he is moving and working uh, in those areas and in our lives. Amen? Amen. All right, I want to read out John 21, and then we'll pray. It says, Simon, uh, verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. And they went out, immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. They caught nothing. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know it was him. It wasn't Je- they didn't know it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast, and now they're able to not even draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Amen? When we listen to God's voice, when we obey what he says to go do, he is the multiplier of our finances. He makes us do things that don't make any sense sometimes. I was fishing all night. What do you mean throw it over? I already did that. It didn't work. Sometimes he says, we'll do it again. We'll do it again. And we need to trust in him. So let's pray for the tithes and offerings. Heavenly Father, we thank you for every gift, every giver, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God of multiplication. That when you tell us to throw our net over in your perfect timing, and we do, Father, you are the God of abundance. More than we could ask or imagine. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so our guest speaker uh, this morning, uh, his name is Brian Lusky. He is a missionary uh, to Japan. Amen. He's a missionary to Japan. Uh, He's doing a great work. Brian and I have known each other at least a decade. So we took a homiletics class a long time ago from Pastor Ed Huntley, who used to run the Federated Church right here at our Bible school that we had some years back. And I think Brian and I sat next to each other. And we'd share notes and we'd discuss different things. And at that point in time, you're the worship leader. 
at Grace uh, uh, Church over here in McCain. And then he became the campus pastor, and then he became kind of the missionary pastor, all in the hopes that in his heart burning deep inside was a, a desire to reach the lost and to reach the unchurched people and really the unchurched people of Japan. So I'm going to not steal his thunder because he's going to come up here and share. But I want you guys to know as a church, we support him. On a monthly basis, when you give to missions, when you give, I mean, you can give to this afternoon and we'll, I'll come up here this afternoon. I'm already, I'm already predicting the end of the service. Uh, when you come up here at the end, uh, I'm going to come back up and you can grab an offering envelope in the back and give it directly uh, to him. You can just write Brian uh, Lusky. We'll make sure he gets that. But as a church, we support him every single month as a missionary. And he, you know, he's, he's, he's part of our team that we're sending out and we're excited for him. And here's what I love about Brian before he comes up. We knew each other, and he came to meet with Liz and I to discuss his mission and what he was going to go do and his big plans and purposes to reach Japan. And he just started asking us questions. And he started wondering, well, how are you guys doing? And he began to pour life into us. Brian, I'll never forget that time. We were struggling for whatever it was. I don't remember now what the current challenge was. But you came and you brought us life. You prayed with us. You spoke wisdom into us. You dropped your agenda. You didn't even say the word Japan. I mean, the meeting was over and he left. And we're like, hey, we should talk to Brian about Japan again at some point in the future. But that says so much about you, your integrity, your care for the local church, and for us personally. And so welcome to Erie Christian Fellowship Church. Give Brian a hand as he comes up. Check, check. There we are. How are we doing this morning, church? That's good. Uh, thank you, Pastor Jason. That is so kind of you. Um, and it is an honor to be able to open the word with you today. I just want to give you a heads up that if you have your Bible or if you have uh, the Bible app on your device, we're going to be in Revelation. I did not know that you guys were actually in Revelation, and so the the Holy Spirit is good. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 5. We're going to be right where we need to be today. Um, You can go ahead and turn there as I get started. Um, And man, I cannot think of a better way to be prepared for what I feel like God wants to say to us today than how we all worship the Lord together. And I, I love it. I love this every time. I, you guys don't know this about me, but um, I got saved at age 17 in a, in, a, in a church that met in a high school auditorium, and they emphasized the gifts of the Spirit. I mean, they were, they were, they were charismatic, and we were, we were, I was in there, and they emphasized, and they had passion in worship. And so in Erie, I've been a pastor in Erie for the last— 17 years in this area, but I got to tell you, there's a little, there's a soft space in my heart for this room right here, because whenever I want to just be in a room with people that are passionately pursuing God and worship, because I'm a worship leader, I love to do that. ECF is the place, right? And so I just want to encourage you, thank you, because you know that it's not just the people up here who are leading worship. As a, as a worship leader for all this time for myself, I always said it's the congregation, our worship leaders from the seats. They encourage us. We need your encouragement, and we're all together pursuing one God. That's amazing. Um, first things first, just a quick background on me. I've been married to my wife, Rachel, for 16 years, and we have two girls, uh, age 10 and 7. Uh, Chloe is our oldest, age 10, and Hannah is 7. Um, and as I said, I've spent the last 17 years in the area as a pastor here, uh, but my family and I recently responded to a call from God to become missionaries to the country of Japan. I serve as the leader of what we call the Japan Initiative, which is seeking a gospel movement among the Japanese in our generation. And my team and I are focused on 
multiplicative church planting. We're focused on training up indigenous Japanese leaders. We're focused on raising up disciples who can make other disciples, who can make other disciples, and so on and so on, right? It's not about us. It's not about what we can do in our own strength. It's about making it multiplicative so that eventually it's going, hey, people are getting saved, and I don't even know what's happening over there. I had nothing to do with that because the Holy Spirit just took it. That's the prayer. That's the goal. And we're about, I just want to let you know, uh, our family is about 80% funded right now. We're expecting to be leaving in early 2021 to go with our team and to lead our team in the field. We're so excited and we are really excited to be part of the ECF family. So we thank you so much for your prayers and your support. Um, again, I, I agree. I've been friends with Pastor Jason, Pastor Liz. They've been, they've been uh, just great influences in my life, and we're so thankful to be uh, together with them. So today we are going to talk about God's heart, and we are going to talk about the world for sure. We're going to do that. But before we get there, I want to paint you a picture of God that has deeply affected my life. As a worship leader, I would always tell my teams that our job is to paint the biggest picture of God that we possibly can, and we just let people respond to that. Like, if we do our job right, if we're just painting the biggest picture of God that we can, people's hearts will be drawn to that. They will respond no matter what their circumstances are. In fact, I would submit today that our picture of God, and especially our picture of Jesus, will define how we live, how we act, how we respond in every circumstance of life. You see, the more that you see God is worthy, worthy of trust, worthy of praise, worthy of glory, the more you see that, the less lukewarm and the more passionate you will be, the more passionate and on fire you'll be. When you see who God is, when you grasp what he loves, when you grasp what his purposes are, and what those purposes demand that we do in response, then there's going to be a difference in your life. Amen? There's going to be a difference in your life. You see, your picture of God determines your passion. Your picture determines your passion. It determines whether you're going to say yes or not to his spirit when it comes knocking. You know that moment when he comes knocking on the door of your heart, and there's that temptation. Am I going to say yes if he asks me something that's, that's hard, if he asks me about something that's out of my comfort zone? It's going to determine what you care about. It's going to determine what's important to you and how hard you chase after it. Your picture determines your passion. And so that's our big idea today. And we're, our starting point for that is Revelation chapter 5. I want to look at the scene in Revelation 5 today, and as we do that, we're going to find within it hope and confidence for when we're struggling, and by the means by which we can push forward in passion and faith to our great God. This section of scripture, as I said, has been one of the favorite passages of my life. It's, it's changed my life because contained within these verses is the gospel itself. Our hope is described in these passages with great clarity here. And it's described in a way that it's going to allow us to persevere and to sacrifice and to trust, to trust like never, ever before. And so in chapter 5, just to set the scene, John's taken up to the throne room of God and he's given the picture. He's given this picture of the authority and of the sovereignty of Christ and it breaks him and it changes him. It causes him to weep and to worship in equal measure. So let's read the passage here, and then when we unpack, we'll unpack what it means for you. I'm going to read the whole thing, uh, at, just, just set the scene, and then we'll go back through and look at it a little bit. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. I love it as worship leaders. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and around the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Whew, what a glorious, amazing uh, just indescribable scene. John gives it his all. He gives it his best, but it's, it's indescribable. What can we take away from this passage? What, 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 how can this picture of worship and praise help us live out our life of faith and avoid any danger of becoming lukewarm? The answer comes from what the scene tells us about Jesus and his work in creation and what's going to come to pass. Very simply, I want to just show you four realities that spring from this text, and then we're going to respond what it means for us and what it means for the world. So four realities from this text. The first one is this. God is in control. Very simple. God is in control. Verse 1 says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. Let's unpack that a second. John sees a scroll in the hand of God. It says that so much text is written on the scroll that there's actually text. You can see it's written on the front and the back. So what's exactly on this this scroll? We could say that it's quite literally God's will for the universe. It's his sovereign plan for all of his creation. It contains the course of history, his plan for the future and ultimate redemption. And all that has come to pass, all that is and all that will be, and it's all on the scroll. It's all in the hand of God. You know, the last verse in chapter 4 in Revelation, the, verse before, the, the chapter before this, it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things here, and by your will they existed and were created. God is sovereign over it all. He's sovereign over all creation, over all nation. Our God charts the court course of countries. Pretty convenient since we're coming to pray together on the first, right? He creates all things. 
He sustains all things. He knows all things. He ordains all things. The author of creation has authority over creation. We make choices. Yes, we do. But God is in control. He's in control of creation. He's in control of salvation. He's in control of mission. He's in control of all of those things. And this is good news for us because it means that God can and will accomplish all that he has set out to do. It's good news because we know that all that's shown to us in Revelation will come to pass just as God has intended it to be. God holds the destiny of the world in the palm of his hand. One of the greatest mistakes that we could ever make is to convince ourselves that God needs us for his team. You see, he doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's perfectly able to bring glory to himself by himself without any help from us. And so God doesn't need us, but check this out. He invites us into what he's doing. He says, you want to come play? Let's play. He's a king who invites his people to co-rule with him, to have authority in his creation. God involves us in his plans. God invites us to participate and join, uh, join him, not because he needs us, but because he loves us. Key difference there. So the first reality is that God is in control. Know that. Have that as your foundation. Secondly, apart from Christ, all is lost. The second reality is apart from Christ, All is lost. Okay, it's going to get heavy for a second, so just bear with me. Revelation 2, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The state of our hearts, apart from Christ, is hopeless. John is weeping because he knows no one is worthy to open this scroll. And this scroll, this scroll that contains God's grand purposes, the scroll that contains the eradication of evil, it contains the defeat of death, it, it contains the end of all suffering and pain and all world wars and atrocities, it's all written on the scroll. But without someone to open the scroll, all of us are doomed to get what we deserve. We're doomed to get eternal separation from God. And the silence of heaven in that moment, the silence of heaven testifies to the sinfulness of man. John looks around and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth can speak up. And so he begins to weep. We're not good enough, are we? We're not good enough. No one can earn their way into heaven. Romans 3 tells us that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short. No one is righteous. You're not. I'm not. And so here in verse 2, all is lost. See, I think one of the greatest problems facing people in our culture today is that people don't truly grasp their own lostness. We think we, yeah, we think we've got some problems, but we're okay. We're doing fine compared to our neighbors. But for the most part, we don't believe that we're really broken, that we're really lost. We think we're sufficient, but we don't realize that we're naked, we're broken, we're completely incapable of saving ourselves. And most of the time, we get offended at the very idea that someone would suggest that we need saving at all, except in our darkest moments of our lives. You know, I went to Japan for the first time in 2014. My plane actually landed three years to the day after the great earthquake in March 2011. I don't know if you remember that. 
You may recall the devastation that the earthquake caused as it triggered massive tsunami waves that destroyed hundreds of miles of the north, northeastern coastline of Japan. And I spent a few days during that trip up in that area, standing in places where whole towns used to be. But now there was nothing but dirt and mud. And in the three years after the disaster, when I got there, most of the wreckage had been cleared away at that point. But people were still living in temporary housing three years later. And even to this day, they're still rebuilding in some places. And it will never be the same. Some towns will never be the same, even nine, ten years on. There was one town in particular, you can see it here, a fishing community called Minami Sanriku. And it really affected me going to this place. I've never, I'd never seen it like that when I got there. Minami Sanriku is built on a low-lying coastal plain. And on the day of the tsunami, 50-foot waves, four stories high, simply washed the town off the map. 95% of the buildings were destroyed. Half the population of the town was killed in this tsunami. Many of the people who did survive fled to the hills surrounding Minami Sanriku because of the disaster communication station that's located in the middle of the town. You can see a before and after picture here. Of the, that's the disaster communication station where they would announce if there was a tsunami warning. That day, there was a woman in that building named Miki Endo. She was working in the communication station, and when the tsunami warning hit their office, she got on that loudspeaker and that was designed to warn residents of the incoming tsunami to begin to tell them to get out, to get to higher ground. And you can look this up on YouTube. If you type in Minami Sanriku, you can he- see video of this happening. You can hear her voice ringing out over the town, warning people to get up and get out and get up to high ground as the, uh, up right until the tsunami waves, they sweep up, they go through the building and destroy it. At the foot of the building, uh, you can actually see in this picture, I said that here, it's hard to see, but that, you see that antenna right down, uh, down there in the bottom of the screen in the foreground? That's the, that's the communication station. That's the same emergency center you were just looking at. It's three stories high, and there's a guy, you can barely see it, he's hanging on to the antenna right there, clinging on for dear life. The hospital in the background is five stories high. And I stood at the base of that building that day in 2014, that red steel shell. That's all that's left. Everything else had been cleared away. It's just basically that. And I got to tell you, it was heavy. It was a heavy feeling. And I felt like the spirit just, just in that moment, I was trying to imagine. I thought about Miki a lot that day, Miki Endo, and what she must have been thinking as the waves poured in, destroying every building in sight. It's that pit of your stomach feeling, knowing that there's nothing you can do that you're powerless to stop it. And I felt like the Lord was just talking to me a little bit in that day. He said, this is the weight, the weight that you're feeling right now. This is the same weight that you should feel about what I've saved you from, about your sin, about your brokenness. It's heavy. Because that same feeling that we understand, it's when we understand the reality of our lostness, of our sin apart from Christ, because there is a tsunami happening in our hearts. Did you know that? There's a tsunami happening of our own making, of brokenness and sin. And Jesus is crying out, just like Mickey was crying out that day to that town. Jesus is crying out. He's warning us, and he's willing to lay down his life so that we might hear and receive life. See, when you don't feel the weight of your sin, when you don't feel the weight of your brokenness, then you don't feel like you've been saved by much, and your worship is going to be empty. But when you understand that you truly need help, then when help comes, your response will be different. 
your response to God and worship is directly proportionate to how honest you are with yourself about what you've been saved from with your lostness. Here in Revelation 5, listen, John is one of the apostles. He's one of the disciples. John knows. John's not okay. He weeps because no one is worthy and redemption cannot come without someone to come and open the scroll. And if that's where we ended the sermon today, it would be a very dark place indeed. But, what a beautiful but it is. Reality three, Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered death, amen? Look at verse five. Here's what happens. He's weeping. One of the elders comes to him and it says to me, he says, it says to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Throughout history, from the beginning of time, men have come and men have gone. Women have come and women have gone. All of them, the generation after generation, the strongest of them, the greatest of them, the noblest of them, the kindest of them, century after century, every single man and every single woman succumbed to death. But then came another man. Unlike any other man or woman before, this man did not fall prey to sin. He possessed power over sin. And this man, he didn't succumb to death. He triumphed over death. This is our Jesus. And now in Revelation 5, this conqueror of death, the lion of Judah, he has come. Check it out, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You see, John, John turns around. He expects to see the lion, the lion of Judah. But what does he see instead? He sees a lamb. Yeah. He sees a lamb. John uses a specific word in the Greek for little lamb. And he describes the lamb this way, that he saw him standing and as though it had been slain. And this describes our Jesus perfectly, doesn't it? He's standing. He's not dead. He's alive. And yet he bears the marks of his work on the cross for us. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. He conquered by suffering and paying the penalty for sin. He was despised and rejected, stricken, wounded in our place. He defeated death. And though we are utterly without hope without him, now those who who hide themselves under the banner of his love will be saved. This is the greatest news in all the world. And there is this audacious scene that begins to happen in response to that reality in verse 7. Verse 7, he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Can you imagine? Like you just pass, you're reading that, you're reading that passage, we read it all together. You just pass right by that verse. I just want to just have that verse hanging out there for us. Can you imagine? Jesus walks up. No one's worthy. No one in heaven or on earth is worthy to take the scroll. And Jesus just goes, takes it. He takes the scroll. He walks up with authority. Jesus is worthy. But he's worthy in the most paradoxical way, isn't he? He conquered through suffering out of apparent defeat. Astonishing victory. The lion of Judah gave himself up like a little lamb for sacrifice. Philippians 2 says, Jesus was obedient to death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's exactly what we see happen. Next, Jesus takes the scroll because he's worthy, and all of heaven and all of earth responds. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, they fall down in worship. Verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There is rejoicing because Jesus, through his blood, has conquered death. He's worthy to open the scroll. And now God's redemptive plan for all creation can, but not only can, will come to completion. And listen, this is not something that just may come to pass. This is something that will come to pass. Even we've got all this imagery. We've got the harps and we've got the bowls. We've got the horns. We've got the eyes. We've got everything happening. That Those are the words that John had to use to describe this, this amazing and incredible scene. But this is a definite vision of a coming future outcome and reality. Bank on it. Jesus has accomplished it already. Church, how does that make you feel? Just stop for a second. How does that make you feel? I want you to sit and rest in that verse for a moment. See the scene of worship and respond and realize that all that you're going through, all that you must endure in the future in this life that you don't know about yet, it's worth it because the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who is slain, is victorious. Amen? Now, what was the result of his sacrifice? What's the outcome of the cross? It says it right here in, in, in the text. By your blood, you what? By your blood, you ransom people. You ransom people. Let's just stay here for just a second, and I want this to be intensely personal. I want you to feel this. God's redemptive work, the cross of Jesus, is rooted in grace. It's rooted in grace. And what that means is that you do not deserve the redemption that you receive. It's not based on you. It's all grace. And yet, in spite of you, in fact, in spite of your lostness and your sin, he still went to the cross anyway for you. Listen to me. He has ransomed you. He has purchased you. It just kind of knocks you back if you think about it, doesn't it? Ephesians 1 makes this point in, in, in a different way. It describes it. He says, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has chosen you in him before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined you to be adopted as his son through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with with which he has blessed us in him. In him, you have redemption through his blood and forgiveness for your trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on you according to his purpose. In him, you have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God purposed to save you. Just feel the weight of that for a moment. In the midst of your weakness, in the midst of your struggle, amidst your suffering, in the, in the trying moments of your life or your marriage or your family, don't forget this, before the sun was even formed, before a star was put in the sky, 
before mountains were ever established, and before our oceans were ever poured upon the land, before any of that happened, Almighty God set his sights on your soul. He set his sight on you. This is an incredible truth and one we need to feel so deeply. So I want to ask, do you feel it? Do you feel it today? Does it light your heart up with worship and the desire to praise him? That's amazing. But here's the thing. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Verse 9 doesn't just stop at ransom people for God and then we go home. (laughs) It says, by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that's just not some throwaway line at the end. It's just a phrase to throw on at the end to make it sound cool in the song. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the cross, the purpose of the cross. And we're coming to the crux because the last reality we need to see today is the cross isn't just for you and people like you. One of the problems we have, I love being an American, I love being in the U.S., one of the problems I think that our culture puts on us is we're so individualistic. I work in Asian cultures. They're more aware of community, and they have their own problems with that too. But we're so individualistic, so no matter what race or color or political affiliation we are, it's easy for our cultural bias, our cultural bias, to make us miss the most important detail of this passage. We completely focus on what I was just talking about, God's redemptive work for ourselves, while completely missing that the cross is focused on groups of people. You see, not only is the cross rooted in grace, it is unmistakably global in scope. It's unmistakably global in scope. The song of heaven cries it out. By your blood, you purchase people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What Revelation 5 is saying is that Jesus went to the cross so that he could purchase for God a remnant of every people group on the earth. And that has ramifications for you and me, doesn't it? I want to be clear with you today. The greatest tragedy that exists in our world today is not COVID-19. And this whole passage is a promise of what's going to come. So I got it covered, Pastor. That's my one. The greatest tragedy in our day is not the refugee crisis. It's not hunger. It's not education or clean water or which political party is in power or immigration or poverty or war. Those are all problems we need to solve. Those are all problems Christians should be involved in. But they're not the greatest tragedy of our day. The greatest tragedy that exists in our world today is that there are still people in this world who are born, grow up, live, and die without ever having an opportunity to receive Jesus. And there are 2.7 billion of those people in the world today alive. Who am I talking about? I just simply mean this. We live in a place here in Erie in the U.S. where people, even if they don't know Jesus, they have a general sense of this great love story between God and humanity. And even if they don't know yet, if they've never heard it yet, there's probably someone in their life, there's probably a neighbor or a friend or a coworker in town who can tell them about it because there are followers of Jesus here. But almost 3 billion people will never get a chance to hear this story. Not because they don't care. Get this. It's not because they don't care, but because they don't have a choice. Nobody ever told them about Jesus. And where they live, there are either no Christians to speak of, or the church is just not strong enough or numerous enough to provide meaningful access to the gospel for people. They live in what we call unreached people groups. A people group is a collection of people who have a shared language and culture and history. There's an estimated 17,000 
uh, p- distinct people groups on earth. You can kind of see all the people groups. The green are the people groups that kind of have Jesus, have Bibles, churches, and Christians. And it kind of comes down to the red side where there's unreached people groups, these people groups I'm talking about. That almost 40% of the people groups on earth are unreached. And yet in Revelation 5, we've read, we know, we know how it ends. We know that this story ends. We're going to see a remnant from all of those people groups in heaven, worshiping God, coming to worship the lion and the lamb, our Savior Jesus. Now, of all the people groups on the earth that are still unreached, did you know that Japan is the second largest of them? So they got 124 million people, and yet less than 1% of them are Christian. In fact, Tokyo is currently the largest concentration of unreached people group in the history of the world. It's the largest metropolitan area in the world, 38 million people. Even though it's a developed country, it's full of spiritual darkness and spiritual poverty. It has the look of being polished. While spiritual darkness reigns underneath, people in Japan experience exceedingly high levels of shame and pressure in their society. And this leads to high levels of depression, one of the highest suicide rates in the world. You know, they have a word for death at work. They actually have people who work themselves to death in overtime. They spend so much time feeling the pressure to work. It's called karachi. And they, they die at their desks. And they're actually trying to figure out a way to to stop this from happening. Most recently, there's been a huge upswing in suicide among teenage girls in Japan in the last year. And so there's this deep need for the hope of the gospel there. And yet, because of Japan's status as a first world country, it's difficult for many churches. They don't think of it as a normal place to go and do missions. And it takes great contextualization and great cost to do ministry there. But like every other unreached people group, It's full of actual individual people who haven't had the same opportunity that you and I have had to respond to the gospel. You know, I remember getting a chance to preach at a Japanese church a couple years back. And at the end, I gave this opportunity for people to come forward. We laid out this piece of paper across the whole front of the room. And I said, I just want you to come forward. I know in a place where there's only 1% Christian, less than 1% Christian here, that all of you have family, friends, co-workers that don't know Jesus. So I want you to come up and I want you to write names down. We're going to have a whole prayer wall. We can hang it up later. It's going to be the names of the people that you're praying for, that you want to come see Jesus. This tiny little church in Japan, right? And um, so they started to do that. They started to come forward. And I, I noticed all of a sudden that the woman who was serving as my translator, she's now a good friend of mine, her, she, she was weeping. If you know anything about Japan, that is odd. That does not happen. They do not show emotion in public. And her tears are streaming down her face. And I, I'm going, what, what, was it that bad? My sermon, <laughs> right? And I realized she was crying because her only daughter, a young woman named Sachi, who was not a Christian, had come to hear her mom translate my message. And Sachi was coming forward. And Sachi got to the front and she wrote a list of names down. And at the very top, she wrote, Sachi. And we got the chance to stay after and to to pray with her, and she received Jesus that day. And I was completely humbled because if you don't if you don't know, it takes an average of seven years from the time a Japanese person first hears the gospel to when they make a decision to follow Christ on average. It's incredibly, incredibly difficult um, field to do missions work in. And so I know there are Japanese pastors. I know there are missionaries who go years without ever seeing a single convert. They're in Isaiah-style, Jeremiah-style callings going, God, I'm coming, I'm preaching, I'm saying the good news, and it doesn't matter whether people respond or not because I have to be obedient to the words you put on my mouth. That's the calling that missionaries have in some places of the world today. I know that's a reality, and I'm like, 
you're so good, Spirit. Here I am getting to pray this young woman into the kingdom. I didn't have anything to do with it. I'm just the final step in the journey. But man, to be a part of that is so, was such an honor, such an honor. And it's people like Sachi and her mom that made me say, God wants to do more in this country. He wants, and we have to make this people group a priority as the church here. And so what is God's plan to close that gap between the 10,000 or so people groups that are, that are reached today and all 17,000 being reached, including Japan. Fortunately for us, it's been made clear. He, he clearly spelled it out for the disciples and for us in Matthew 28. It's known as the Great Commission. It is the calling and the purpose of every believer, and Jesus lays it out. Verse 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells the disciples, and he's telling us, that our mission is to make disciples of all nations, of all peoples, of all people groups. You see, that word nations, it doesn't mean geopolitical nation states or countries. The word in the Greek is ethne. It means people groups. This call from Jesus to go and to make disciples in places and in people groups where there are none is the primary calling of the church. And I hear people ask me all the time, they go, well, aren't there unreached people everywhere? We've got them in Erie, right? And by unreached, they mean unsaved, and there's a, there's, a, there's a difference. Unreached is different from unsaved. See, the difference is your unsaved neighbor, my unsaved neighbor, they could hear about the gospel if you and I would get off the couch and just go talk to them about it, right? There's access here to the gospel. In many cases, people in our culture have heard the gospel. They've decided to reject it. doesn't mean we shouldn't keep reaching them, but they've had this opportunity. But listen to this and try to just wrap your head around it. It's difficult to wrap your head around. 70,000 people die every day in unreached people groups. That means that 70,000 people die every day without ever having heard the gospel even once. 70,000 people today, this Sunday, will die and will go to Christless eternity. Tomorrow, another 70,000. And on Tuesday, another 70,000. Every single day. We don't have the luxury of taking our time with this. This isn't a problem for someone else. It's a problem we have to address if we love the Lord. It is the greatest tragedy on earth, and Jesus gave us a clear calling to address it. And so it begs the question, how are we as the, the church doing with that calling? And the truth is, as a whole, the churches in, 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 in the U.S., uh, we're doing okay. <laughs> and you might be like, oh, well, wait, what do you mean by that? How can that be? Aren't churches sending people out? Well, yes, but the truth is, and I may be preaching to the choir here if you know this already, but most of the people that churches send out cross-culturally in the U.S. go to places where the gospel has already been heard. Only 3% of the missionaries we send out go to the almost 3 billion people, 40% of the world, who don't yet have access to the gospel, right? That red area up there that we call the 1040 window where gospel access is least. And if you look at it financially, the picture doesn't look much better. Christians give away, Christians, just talking about Christians, they give away about, we give away 2% of our income on average to Christian causes. Less than 7% of that 2% is given to cross-cultural missionary work. And out of that cross-cultural giving, only one one one-hundredth of that is actually going to working with people working with the 3 billion people who don't know Jesus, have no church, or any Christian neighbors. The other 99% of that giving goes to the rest of the world that already has Christians and Bibles and churches. Now, please understand, I am not saying, I, I, I want to tell you and, and, and encourage you, local ministry and local mission are totally necessary. 
local mission and local ministry are totally necessary. I'm not saying we should neglect local ministry to our neighbors or to our cities. Not at all. In fact, here's the reality. Without local church, without the local church working in a local context, there would be no opportunity to share the gospel globally. It wouldn't exist. I'm just saying there's an imbalance. That's all. There's an imbalance. And are we okay with that imbalance? In Matthew 28, the object of the action, make disciples. I'm going to get real here. The object of the action, make disciples, is all nations. The object of that word is all nations. Jesus didn't, so that means Jesus didn't say to disciple, period. He didn't say to disciple your family only, or disciple whomever happens to be near, or disciple the people in your community, or disciple people like you. He said disciple all nations, i.e. all people groups, all ethno-linguistic groups. Make disciples cannot be divorced from all nations. That doesn't mean that everyone gets up and goes, but it means, here's the thing, it means everyone gets involved in some way. Everyone has a touch in their life to this great commission in some way, shape, or form. John Piper once famously said that there are three different types of Christians in this world. Zealous goers, zealous senders, and disobedient. (laughs) And it, it begs the question, we have to ask ourselves, which one am I? If you read the words of our Savior here, if you're moved to respond and be involved in some way, then it can no longer be acceptable to be spending millions and millions of dollars as a church of the whole on programs and ministries for ourselves and for us and for people like us while there are three billion people who've never heard the gospel before. I'm so proud of this church for being a church that cares about the world. Some of us are called to go, yes, but some of us are also called to send. Some of us are called to mobilize. Some of us are called to train and equip others to share the gospel in every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And what Revelation 5 clearly demonstrates to us is that God's heart is for the peoples of the earth. And therefore, your heart should follow his heart. And yet I have to confess at times in my life, and maybe it's true for you too, that we've, I've taken Jesus' last command before he left the earth, this command in Matthew 28, and I've turned it into an optional program for a couple of special people, right? I've gone, oh, missions, that's for those, those, those crazy people that are real passionate about that, right? I've done that. Why do we do that, right? Why do we do that? Why, when we hear Jesus say, go and make disciples of all nations, we assume that means others. But when he says, come to me, all you are heavy laden, we assume that means me. When Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, we think that's for others. When he says, cast your cares upon me, we think, oh, that means me. And at some point I had to come to the conclusion, I had to say, what right do I have to draw a distinction between the promises of God and the commands of Christ? What right do I have to do that? You've been saved for the spread of the gospel in the world. That's what you've been saved. That's the purpose. It will look different in all of our lives, But all of our lives will be changed when we realize we are created for global mission. If you want to get more involved in that, if you want to pray more effectively, pray more deeply, if you want to link arms with us to help send us out, I would love to talk with you after the service. I'll hang out afterwards, and we'd love to to get to know you more as a church and give you opportunity to partner with us to see people that are unreached become reached in our lifetime. Because for those of us that follow Jesus, if we claim that we love him, if we claim that we want to honor him, if we claim that we understand the depth of sacrifice that happened on the cross, then unreached peoples sharing the gospel globally and making disciples of all nations, not just our own nation, will be of the highest priority for us as the church. And so if we believe what Revelation 5.9 says, if we believe that Jesus died to purchase people from every tribe and tongue and nation, then let us go to every tribe and tongue and nation. 
because the cross isn't just for you. It's not just for me. It's not for people like us. It's for every people group on earth, especially those who haven't yet had the opportunity to hear. And I hear people say all the time, Brian, what's God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do? As if he hasn't already clearly laid out the calling for believers. I'm here to tell you today, God's will is not lost. Not only has he given you a clear calling in Matthew 28, he has told you what the ending is going to be like. He already spoiled it for us, right? He sees it in Revelation 5 and 7 that people, we see people from every nation surrounding the throne. It works. And here's possibly the most important point from all of this. I've been hinting at it the whole time and uh, as we've delved into this glory, glorious picture of Jesus, I've been looking at it. Maybe this is the only thing you get from this sermon today. I want you to hear this. I'm going to say it plain. What is the motivation for our response? What is the motivation for our response? Because we feel guilty that we're, that we're reached, that we have resources. You might ask, aren't we just guilting people into going overseas to the unreached? We feel bad, so we go. No, no, no. What drives passion for unreached people groups is not guilt, it's glory. It's glory. Glory for a king. It's people who know that our sovereign God deserves the praise of every single people group on the planet. Not just a few groups here and there, not just 10,000 groups, but all 17,000 of them. People who believe that zealously go or zealously send and mobilize others to go. That's what we do. And so we're not going to stop as a church until every single people group purchased by Christ is exalting his name. Amen? Because he's worthy. And that's the point. He's worthy. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of glory and honor, worthy of trusting through our worst of our struggles and our storm, worthy of trusting when you don't understand yet. And so how do you keep from being a lukewarm Christian? You look at the heart of God. You see that picture clearly because your picture determines your passion and you decide, I want to love what he loves. I want to desire what he desires. And because he's calling me to the same thing, because he deserves worship and honor and glory, I will simply say yes, yes, yes. Whatever he asks of me, yes. Not out of duty or obligation, not out of guilt, but out of awestruck worship and complete confidence in the lion and the lamb. I'm gonna ask the band to come up. And as they do that, let me end with this. In the 1700s, there was a group of Christians, you may have heard of them, they're called the Moravians. And they understood this motivation for sharing the gospel, that it comes from the worthiness of Jesus. They even began using a phrase that is a paraphrase of this passage in Revelation 5. And there's a story for about two of the Moravian church, these two young men. They heard of this island in the West Indies that was full of slaves and that that they were from Africa. They never heard of Christ before. But the problem was the owner of the island was an atheist and he refused to allow any churches or any preachers to set foot on the island. But these young men were, were compelled to go to the island, share the gospel with people who had never heard it before. And they just weren't sure how they were gonna do that. So they prayed and they asked the Lord and they made the decision to sell themselves into slavery. These two young men sold themselves into slavery. They made the decision to go. They said goodbye to their family. Didn't know if they were ever going to see them before again. And um, the ship pulled away from the dock. And as they pulled away from the dock, one of the young men raised up his hand and he said, May the lamb who was slain receive the reward for his suffering. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. It was an epic moment for seeing how the worthiness of Christ 
drives people to surrender. And my prayer for you today is that like those two young men, you will be so captured by the picture of Jesus here in Revelation 5 that you will be willing to give anything and everything to say yes to our worthy Savior, whatever he asks of you in this life. And so let's stand together right now together. Would you stand with me? The only appropriate response to such a picture of God is to join with all of heaven and earth and worship him, the one who's worthy to open the scroll. And so as the music begins to play, would you just close your eyes for a moment? I want you to take a moment. Imagine you're in that scene with John. Imagine that you're there in the throne room of God and that scene is playing around. Imagine that Jesus, the risen Savior, is standing in front of you and the wounds in his hands are clearly visible. Would you just imagine that scene, that scene that will one day come to pass in in front of our very eyes and would you take a moment, would you pray a prayer of praise right now? Tell him that he's worthy. Ask him to revive your faith, to keep you from being lukewarm, but instead to worship him with white hot passion. Do that right now. Go ahead. Father God, let us believe deeply in a sovereign God, in you who holds the destiny, our destiny, and the destiny of the world in the palm of your hand. Let us spend our lives for the sake of all peoples, especially the least reached, and tell them the greatest news in all the world. And let us not stop until Jesus, the Lion of Judah, and the Lamb who was slain, receives the full reward of his sufferings. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Guys, I just want to stretch our hands out to Brian and just pray over him and his family right now and Rachel and their children. Just stretch your hands to them. They sent out a newsletter periodically, and I got these prayer requests right off the email. I believe he sent it. I think it was on Friday. So if you're interested in connecting with him, he'll be around afterwards. You can get on that distribution list. We will continue to support him as a church. Let's just pray right now. Father, we just pray for this gospel movement among the Japanese people. Father, have your way. Your will be done, which is none shall perish without knowing you. Father, we pray for Japanese churches to continue to be a blessing in their community in this time. Father, we pray for Rachel in her own transition this month, Father. Father, we pray for encouragement and processing of all the emotions of this major change that's coming at them. Father, we pray for Converge, the Asia regional gathering that's going to be happening. I believe he he said he's doing those in the evenings on Zoom in the middle of the night. So strength for Brian and Rachel as they're here in the States but doing a Zoom call in the middle of the night for the next five days. Father, we pray for new team members to come onto their team for the current ones to feel equipped and coached. We pray for families to prepare for the six weeks of cross-cultural training that's going to start in January. And Father, we pray for wisdom for them of where to live in Japan. Open up the doors for the place of their residence where you've called them to be. The perfect house, the perfect place 
where you want their family to continue to grow in you and to reach the nations for you. We lift them up in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So prayer team's going to be up here up front. They can pray if you didn't get if you need prayer for anything that maybe you didn't get prayer for. Brian will be around as well, uh, either up front or maybe he'll linger a little bit in the lobby uh, as well. You can get more information. If you want to give specifically to his ministry, uh, if you want to give to uh, uh, Converge or if you want to just write down Brian, uh, you can do that as well. It's offering envelopes on the back table. Just fill that in, put it in the other line or in special speaker line. We'll see that. And slip it in. There's a box to the left of the door when you leave. You can just drop it in there. But know as a church, we've committed to support him for however long it is uh, on a monthly basis. And of course, we'd love to increase that. So if you just want to write to missions, we can do that as well. And we'll make sure it gets to the right place. So many different ways to give. Let me close with this out of Philippians 4. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. (laughs) And the peace of God will be with you. Amen and amen and amen. You guys are dismissed. Have an amazing week.